0: you literally have a place where you can stop and take a breath at the end of each poem and reflect and talk about just that one moment, if you want, um, before moving on to the next thing. Whereas I feel like sometimes when it's prose and it just keeps going in a picture book, you don't necessarily stop and pause and reflect.
1: Renee Watson describes poetry as a container for emotions. In her writing for children, she has found these containers to be a highly effective tool for emotionally pacing her stories. She uses this tool when approaching difficult topics, like the dark and dramatic true story of Maya Angelou's life in her book, Maya's Song. Renee is a teaching artist and number one New York Times best-selling author, known for titles such as Piecing Me Together, Watch Us Rise, and the Ryan Hart series. Today, she joins us to talk about the value she's found in poetry for youth, how she makes it accessible for kids, and the vocal power the medium holds. We'll also hear which 90s hip hop album holds the secret to good book editing. And stick around until the end to find out the unique reading challenge Renee has created just for you. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and reading enthusiasts to explore ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. So Renee, let's start with you telling me about some of your early experiences with reading. You know, if there was
0: a particular teacher or librarian who had an impact on on your reading life. I had several teachers. I'm so fortunate in that I had a lot of people in my family who modeled reading and um, at school. So school-wise, my earliest memory of a teacher handing me books and encouraging me, not just to read, but to also tell my story, was my second grade teacher. She, um, I just remember loving going into the classroom. She always had Books for us to choose that were in this little nook in the back of the room that we could go read if we finished work early or something like that. And so that teacher is also the one who, when I gave her a 21-page story that I wrote on my own at home, not as an assignment, she actually read it and gave me feedback and and got me a journal and said, I want you to keep writing. I think you're going to be a writer one day.
1: Yeah, you did become a writer, a very successful one at that. You write in a lot of different formats and you've done picture books, novels, poems. Can you talk a bit about how your experience with poetry informs
0: these other types of writing? Poetry is about kind of getting to the heart of the matter quickly. It's how can you tell the biggest idea with the less amount of words and the most impact. And so I think that my poetry is maybe depending on if I'm praising, if I'm critiquing or celebrating, it will hit harder, I think, sooner. Um, Whereas when I'm writing prose, there's just more time and more space to let something unfold, especially because I write sometimes about serious topics. I am thinking about how can I care about my reader through this text and make sure that they're okay as they're reading these hard things. So, for instance, Piecing Me Together, there are... Pages that are just one sentence or one paragraph. And then there are some that are longer, more, you know, full prose, more traditional chapters. And I was thinking about space and breath and giving the character a moment to kind of exhale after they've just read something a little heavy. And then if it's more lighthearted, maybe there could be more words on the page because I don't need to hold you and care for you in that moment as as intently yeah, it's like you're using your poetry as like a way to care for your reader, yeah. So each page is kind of a container for the emotion that the character is going through. And I think I got all of that. I learned how to do that by studying poetry.
1: There are many examples of Renee's use of poetry to express difficult topics. But perhaps one of the best is her work with Nicole Hannah-Jones on the 1619 project, Born on the Water. The 2021 picture book tells the story of slavery and the history of Black resistance in the United States entirely through verse. The book is an incredible and powerful look at the birth of Black America. I wanted to learn more about the process of that book coming to be and the reasons Renee and Nicole Hannah-Jones chose to approach the writing solely through verse.
0: I'm very honored that Nicole reached out and, and wanted to collaborate for the 1619 Project Born on the Water. She had been getting a lot of parents and teachers coming to her saying we want to talk about this with our younger kids. And are you going to do something for them? And so that's kind of how it became an idea that then became a real thing. Um, And she wanted to work with a writer um, that wrote for children. So we connected. And our first meeting, I asked her, I was like, would you be open to writing this in verse? And one of the reasons was because we're telling so much history. It's a lot. I mean, it's a lot of of years that we are covering, right? And I just I could not wrap my mind around how to do that in prose for a picture book. So I felt like the poems could be these kind of snapshots that are taking you through this large, long um history. And then I also, like I said earlier, I think that poetry can be a container for emotions and literally kind of hold the reader. And so I wanted teachers and parents who are reading, this with their young people, you literally have a place where you can stop and take a breath at the end of each poem and reflect and talk about just that one moment if you want before moving on to the next thing. Whereas I feel like sometimes when it's prose and it just keeps going in a picture book, you don't necessarily stop and pause and reflect. But because there's single poems, you can pull them out and just deal with one at a time and then in the whole collective. And I also wanted to pay tribute and honor to Black poets and the way that we tell stories and how stories have been passed down from one generation to the next with kind of oral history, spoken word. So all of that influenced um, writing it in verse. And I appreciate um, Nicole so much because she was like, well, I'm a journalist. (laughs) And I think in the (laughs) beginning, she was like, poetry? I mean, you know, she's already feeling... You know, like she's stretching by writing a picture book. And now I'm asking her to stretch even more. Um, but I she trusted me, and I'm very grateful for that. And so, yeah, we work together on every single poem. Both of our voices are in each verse. So it's not like she wrote one whole poem by herself and then I did the next one. Our lines are intertwined throughout the whole book. And at this point, there are some, parts that I like, I can't even remember who wrote that one, who wrote this stanza or who wrote that line, because we really worked so well together and were very intentional about making sure our voices blended. And so, yeah, it was an honor to work with her on that. And we both also really wanted to start in West Africa before the people were enslaved to make sure that young people reading this also know that their legacy is not just struggle and strife and enduring and overcoming, but that they we come from a people of great strength and brilliance and that they were humans and they were they were living their lives and that and that, that was taken from them. Uh, that was important for us to start with joy and with them being happy and singing and building and loving each other. I never thought that I would write about slavery. It was a topic I just was not interested in touching in my work. I am glad that I thought about it. And I remember my mother, I was stressing about if I should do it or not. And I kept saying to my mom, I don't want to write about slavery. I just, I I don't know if I want to. And she was like, well, you're not. She's like, first of all, Nicole's not going to let that happen. And your work, you've never done that. And these people were people. So you're not going to write about slavery. You're writing about people and what happened to them. And it kind of shifted my approach for working on the project. Um, Yeah, I'm so glad I said yes. And then Nicholas, his art is brilliant and amazing. So it was a great collaboration. Um, It's something I will always cherish working with the two of them.
1: You mentioned starting with joy, and I actually have a quote of yours sitting right here that I wrote down for myself. And that is, joy is a shield. I love that idea. And I think you definitely achieve that in this book. I mean, I like that the story doesn't start with hardship and suffering in the U.S. Instead, it's a joyful origin story, and that, that definitely comes through.
0: Knoxville, Tennessee. I always like summer best You can eat fresh corn from daddy's garden and okra and greens and cabbage and lots of barbecue and buttermilk and homemade ice cream at the church picnic and listen to gospel music outside at the church homecoming and go to the mountains with your grandmother and go barefooted and be warm all the time, not only when you go to bed and sleep. Knoxville,
1: Tennessee is a poem by Nikki Giovanni first published in her 1968 poetry collection, Black Judgment. Giovanni is an American poet and activist who was entrenched in the Black arts movement of the 60s and 70s. While many of her works in Black Judgment and the following anthology, Black Feeling, Black Talk, displayed themes of urgency and revolution, Knoxville, Tennessee reveled in simplicity and calmness. A departure from the style Giovanni had embraced at the time— The poem hinted at the soft human hidden behind the shroud of necessary anger that she had taken on. Giovanni's work as an activist was and is crucial, but in Knoxville, Tennessee, she was able to retreat to a tranquil everydayness and invite others to embrace that feeling. This is what attracted Renee to the poem.
0: One of the reasons why I love it so much is because she just normalizes an everyday moment and in family life a barbecue a family getting together um celebrating summer and i didn't know this either as a child i mean i couldn't articulate why i loved her and langston and maya angelo so much but they had a range in their work that yes sometimes they're critiquing america and they are speaking back to power and talking about race and all of the things that are important they are protest poets And they also talk about everyday life and the humanity of Black folks. And I needed that balance. Um, A lot of times in school, we were just taught through this lens of slavery, the civil rights movement, you know, and very rarely was I given a book that was just. Black folks loving each other and caring about each other and not having to talk about fighting for freedom or anything like that. So I love Knoxville, Tennessee, The Reason I Love Chocolate, and uh, so many of her poems that are these little snapshots of just humanity and everydayness of Blackness.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Are there any small, everyday moments from your own childhood that resonate
0: for you? My mom, I watched her at night Um, read her Bible and she would have a highlighter and a notebook next to her and she'd write down notes and she would highlight scripture and underline some of the phrases and sometimes read it out loud. I would hear her quietly kind of whispering these scriptures as she was reading and memorizing them. And there is something about the practice of reading, like how do you read closely? How do you make sure words really sink in and that you own them. I learned that from her by watching her cherish um, her time when she was reading. And so my books are marked up and underlined and highlighted and earmarked and all that. kind. I'm not very precious with books. I'm precious with the words (laughs) and the act of reading, but the physical book, I I mark stuff up all the time because I, I grew up reading that way. In September of 2022,
1: Renee Watson's picture book, Maya's Song, was released The story follows Maya Angelou's life and journey as a poet and activist. Although it is told in picture book format, Watson doesn't shy away from the dark moments in Angelou's life. Instead, she delicately crafts a narrative that shows readers that dark things will happen, but there will also be light. In the book, she tells the real tale of Maya Angelou's traumatic childhood experience that left her mute for six years and how she eventually found her voice and expression through poetry. What moved me when reading Maya's song was the idea that poetry helped her overcome her physical muteness. Poetry really is something that is written to be read aloud, and Watson's work often plays on the theme of the importance of using one's voice. Poetry is a medium and speaking up intersect in an interesting way, I asked Renée to tell us more about her thoughts on the power of poem and voice and the role they can play in social
0: causes. Protest poets and, and how poets respond to the world and what's happening, they are the recorders of what is going on. And again, I think when you're young especially, that is a way that if you don't have a lot of money, you don't have a lot of clout, you can still say something and not just feel heard, but be heard. You just need your mind just to make it. A, I, have, I have students who can freestyle and rap and make up lyrics. And I'm just like, you are a genius. Like, how are you doing this? And you're not even having to write things down. This is amazing, you know? So, yeah, there's just, there's something about literally raising your voice and letting these words come out of you that's powerful. And that that Maya, when she went through the, her trauma, she didn't speak for 5 years. That is a long time. It's a long time. Especially right at that age. Right, right. But she took so much in. She listened. And I people often ask me like for advice for writers. What do you And I always say, listen more. If you want to be a good writer, you have to listen. You have to pay attention to what's going on in the world. I want you to pay attention to people's face expressions. How do people engage with each other, like pay attention to the world and, and how it's moving along. And um, she did that. She was literally reading the greats, you know, Shakespeare and all these writers, but she also was just listening to birds. And she was noticing the expression on her mother's face when she'd come home from work, how tired she was you can learn a lot about from body language of people who may be saying one thing, but their body is doing something else and so she became this person who knew how to read the world and understand it and I think that's why once she started speaking again, my goodness she had a lot to say <laughs> yeah
1: I think that really comes across here and I and it's almost like by the time anybody is like old enough or whatever to read I know why the cage bird sings and to learn that it's you probably maybe have passed by some important years during which you could take that advice and do that, right? But I think that's one of the most important things that comes through in the book is there's just out of this very traumatic experience and dark time, there's this period during which she's just, you know, you said she takes in like hundreds of thousands of words, you know, and just, you really feel that she's like absorbing and observing everything and then bringing that back out, but just, you know, sits with it for so long.
0: I also love that there's Brian um, has an illustration in the book where she's first um, speaking again after her silence and she's sitting under the porch and she has this book and she's speaking. And I think about the quiet girls and there's something about also allowing young people to be quiet and not pushing them to speak before they want to or before they're ready. We live in a culture that is so obsessed with speaking up, speaking out, being the loudest, being right, having something to say, voicing your opinion. What do you think? What do you think? And I think that that is important, right? And I have absolutely written those characters. Watch us rise. Those girls are on fire. They are ready to take over, you know, all of the things. Feminists. But there are also young girls who are just thinking and pondering and growing into themselves and they need a moment. And that's okay too. I wanna make space for them in books. We sometimes write the the loudest, strongest characters. And I think it's also something to take away from her life was that she did, she knew how to be quiet. She knew how to share space and not have to be the only one speaking and not needing to show off. And I think that's why once she started speaking, people listened to her. So it's a lesson to take away, too, um, for the adults who are working with young people to just think about offering grace. And how do you nurture a young person's voice instead of pushing them? Like, how can we be gentle and encourage them, but also give them space to grow into who they're becoming?
1: Outside of writing herself, Renee has dedicated a great deal of her life to teaching the craft to others. She was a writer in residence for over 20 years in public schools and has taught various programs and workshops across the country for both adults and youth. As exemplified by Maya's song, her work is frequently centered around poetry as a way to deal with trauma. Despite the emotional and educational value that poetry can provide, Often, even adults have a difficult time fully understanding and embracing the medium. And the task of teaching the art of poetry to children can be tricky. I was curious how Renee approaches introducing poetry
0: to students. My favorite kind of starter, especially if I'm with a new group of students, is to ask them where they're from. And I use Willie Perdomo's Where I'm From poem. I have a Where I'm From poem. I share mine. I share his. And we talk about why do writers write about where they're from? Who cares? Why is it important that I'm writing about this little neighborhood in Northeast Portland? And we just have a conversation about especially when you're young, so many people are speaking for you. You don't have a lot of power. You can't vote. <laughs> you're not making the rules at home, at school. There's a, You do not have a lot of power as a young person, but you have your voice. And you can own your narrative and say, yeah, I know that the statistics say this about my neighborhood. I know that this is the stereotype about my people, but this is my story, my personal story. This is who I am. This is why I matter. This is what I care about. This is what I'm afraid of. And these are the people who love me and who I love back. So I like to start there, especially when I was teaching as a teaching artist. Sometimes you have a meeting with the teacher or the principal, and they, you know, are getting you familiar with their school. And they would often tell me, so this class is this way and this class is that way. And when you get in there, there's going to be the this table group that sits in the back, you know? So I already have this perception of who the bad kids are. I remember teaching, are. it was like 4B. 4B is like the <laughs> bad kids, you know? Yes. I mean, I mean, no kids are bad, but that's basically what people right, say. Right, but that is what they would say. You better, you better have your game together when you get in there. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> and I get why that happens, but also I want to meet young people where they are. And I don't want to only, know what people say about them, but what they say about their own self and their own neighborhood and their own families. And so poetry is a way to get them talking about all of that and you know, I'm always telling you can break the rules. And, and when you're writing your essay for your English teacher, there's a certain way you have to go about language. But in poetry, you can play around with things and we can imagine different ways to say things. And so I think they get excited about the idea of breaking rules and speaking up, talking back to the world. That's kind of how I, I like to approach it and tell them, take the mic back and tell me your story. This idea
1: of breaking rules and having fun with language is quite similar to another conversation Renee had with her friend and New York Times bestselling author, Jason Reynolds. On her website, you can find their discussion about writing inspirations. In it, Jason Reynolds admits that he didn't grow up as a reader, but Queen Latifah was one of his most important influences that turned him onto the craft. This struck me. As it was similar to how my husband, who's also black, speaks about his childhood experiences with reading. Together, my husband and I have created Beanstack, which is a reading company, and we are both voracious readers now. But as a kid, reading had less appeal for him. There was a gulf between him and the white characters in his school books, and that didn't stir much passion. The turning point for my husband was finding books that mirrored his own experience. And for Jason Reynolds, it was when verse and music started connecting him to the written word. I was really interested in this idea of music as a gateway to poetry. I asked Renee for her thoughts on the topic.
0: I grew up listening to everything, R&B, gospel. My, my grandfather had a huge record collection. My brother was a DJ. So music is a huge part of my life and I do bring it into the classroom. One of my favorite Lessons to do with young people to get them excited about revision, because who's excited about revising anything, <laughs> um, is to play them. I have a question on the board, and the question is, right about a time you remade something, you know, you took something to make. And they usually talk about styling their clothes or leftovers becoming another meal, that whole thing. And while they're free writing, I play. Uh, I start with Roberta Flax Killing Me Softly. And they're just listening to it for a little bit. And then I fade it and then I start playing the Fugees, um, Killing Me Softly, the remix, and play that for a little bit. And then when we have a class conversation, I ask, okay, what did you write? What, did you, what have you remade? And we get a list going. And then I say, what did you notice while you were writing about the music I played? And that conversation leads into talking about remixing and remaking and how the same words put to a different beat can give you a different emotion, a different feeling. And that is what I'm going to have you do with your work today. I want you to choose something and I want you to add some undertones. I want you to highlight some things, take some things out and make it the same but different. And it's not because something's wrong with it, right? Obviously, the Fuji's loved that song. It's a tribute almost to, like, I want to I want to get in on this thing, right? So I feel like that helps, that like, just kind of eases everyone's anxiety around, oh, no, I did something wrong, and now she's making me change it. Or, no, it's like, no, this is so good. Pick something that you love and make it even better. And how can you do that? And music is a way of showing young people how artists have different versions of the same thing. So I use music to teach lessons like that. Sometimes I just have it playing in the background. And sometimes I'll bring in a poem that, I mean, a song that goes along with the theme of the poem I'm teaching, just to show them that storytelling is happening in many, many ways in our lives. Even when we're just retelling what happened on the subway, you are telling a story. We are storytellers. And we sometimes put on voices and, and reenact what's happened when we're, you know, telling someone about our day. And so I take all of that. The songs they listen to, Um, their casualness with telling stories and and encourage them that they already do it and they already have so many stories in them because they listen to music. And now I'm just asking them to share that more broadly and openly with the class. I like that idea, like the frame of like you're remixing what you you wrote and giving them that idea, you know, is
1: really, that does definitely like resonate with the younger crowd.
0: (laughs) And it helps them, I think, feel less intimidated. So much of writing is, especially in revision, can make you feel it's daunting. It's a big task to ask someone to go back to something, especially if I've already said it's good. And then I really like it. So I'm very good at saying we are working on first drafts today so that they know that eventually you're going to come back to this and, and work on it some more. And I share my my edits, too. I show them sometimes my editorial letters, and, and they're just like, what? I'm like, yeah, I, the book that you finally get And the bookstore is, (laughs) that has been written 15 times before it's actually published, you know, and that, that the real writing happens in revision. So it's nice to talk about that.
1: Okay, let's talk a bit about Portland. You tend to write a lot about the city that you grew up in and you've talked about reading the Ramona series by Beverly Cleary, which is also set there.
0: What was it like to grow up there and how has it influenced you? While I was growing up in Portland, I don't know that I appreciated it or loved it in the way that I do once I moved. I mean, it was special to me because my family is there and I had, you know, my best friends and my church and all of that, but I didn't really understand how much Portland and the people there were so crucial to who I am until I moved to New York. I think leaving home made me love home more. And I went back to those books, the Ramona series, When I was a child, I loved reading those books because Ramona was just a great character. She's complicated. She wasn't perfect. You know, she was sometimes jealous, sometimes bossy. She would throw tantrums like, you know, she was a real kid. But I also love that book because I knew Clickitat Street and I knew the library and the school she was walking to. I felt so seen, like my city is in a book. This is amazing. And it wasn't until I was much older that I was like, but wait a minute, where are the people of color? There are no black girls in this book and we're in that neighborhood. It's like seen and invisible at, all at once. <laughs> yeah, it was. it's all of that, all at the same time. As a writer now, it's it's so important for me to make sure that Black Portland is on the page, that Black girls in the Pacific Northwest feel seen. I think about how history is taught in our schools, and a lot of times we are told about the great migration from the South to the North. And it kind of stops there. We don't really learn about black folks and how they got to the West or the Pacific Northwest. And so, yeah, it's important for me to make sure that that's a part of the narrative, too, and just to help um, hopefully expand what we consider to be black stories and black narratives. We're everywhere (laughs) And, and we're even in Oregon. And so I want to make sure that those stories are told.
1: On that note, you just released the newest installment of the Ryan Hart series with Ways to Share Joy. It's a wonderful book. And in all the books, you are really bringing representation to Portland. Ryan Hart is this adorable character. She's very passionate and resilient and courageous. And my daughter totally loves her, as do I. Her story And the book overall are really a remix to the Ramona series, which had such a strong impact on you growing up. So maybe you could talk a bit about what writing the Ryan Hart series has been like for you.
0: Yeah, it's like my old to Portland, my old to the Ramona series and Beverly Cleary. I think Ryan and Ramona would be friends if they (laughs) were growing up at the same time. Uh, Ryan is, we begin the series with her in the fourth grade and she's, trying to grow into her name. Her name is Ryan, which means king. And her parents are always telling her, be who we named you to be. We want you to be a leader. We want you to be thoughtful and kind. And that's hard when you're 10. It's hard when you're grown, but it's especially hard when you're 10. And so sometimes she gets it right and sometimes she doesn't. And the series kind of follows her in trying to live up to her name. So she's dealing with, for what, when you're that age, is you know, big issues, friendship, drama, and bullying, and also finding your voice, which is a common theme through most of my books. Ryan learns about joy versus happiness. And her grandmother is teaching her that horrible things are going to always happen, but you have a choice to hold on to your joy. And so you might not be happy about what's going on, but you can still be grateful for things. There's still something good to praise. Life is always bittersweet. You know, in the same day, you could get the best news and the worst news. The same week, you'll have some good days and some not so good days. And so what do you do with that as a kid with all those emotions. And so Ryan is figuring that out in this book. And I'm excited to share it with young people. You know, this is the third book of the series. There's going to be four. And then we say goodbye to Ryan as she is graduating from fifth grade, going into middle school.
1: Yeah, well, you spend a lot of time in elementary and middle schools yourself. Are there any moments or experiences
0: during your many school and library visits that really stand out to you? One thing that's very very touching to me is when I see young people who are wearing the same hairstyle of the character. <laughs> and they are they feel so proud that their hair looks like Ryan's hair. This happened a lot with Born on the Water too. A lot of pictures were being taken. We were getting tagged of girls doing their hair like the girl in the book. And there's something that is just so powerful to me. Black hair is such I don't know, a badge of pride and honor and also something that gets criticized and critiqued and talked about and misunderstood and all the things. So to have little Black girls loving their hair and feeling seen because of characters on a book is really powerful and moving to me.
1: For today's episode, Renee has prepared a reading challenge with a theme of writing and verse.
0: It's called Voice Through Verse. I'll let her take it from here. So we've talked a lot about poetry and prose today. So my challenge is to read poetry books and novels in verse. And some that I recommend are One Last Word by Nikki Grimes and Reckless Glorious Girl by Ellen Hagan. And after you read that, uh, my challenge is to write a poem in response to one of the poems that you read.
1: All of our listeners can join Renee's reading challenge, Voice Through Verse, by visiting thereadingculturepod.com. There you can find all the details and recommendations and check out all of our past reading challenges from guests like Meg Medina and Karina Glazer. And now it's time for today's Beanstack Featured Librarian.
0: My name is Pat Tony. I'm a children's services librarian. i at Oakland Public Library in California. A book I like to recommend to teens is The Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Bully. It's a book that stuck with me. It's
1: got a lot of passion and power. I love the story about
0: um, the strength of the women in the family, as well as the modern day tale of Native Americans. And uh, after reading um, Tommy Orange's Here, Here, I think it's just great to provide more information about modern day Native society. So yeah, that's one I really like to recommend for teens.
1: This has been The Reading Culture, and you've been listening to our conversation with Renee Watson. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and currently I'm reading a burning by Mega Majumdar, and The Door of No Return by Kwame Alexander. If you enjoyed today's show, please show some love and rate, subscribe, and share the reading culture among your friends and networks. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources on beanstack.com. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the show. Thanks for joining and keep reading.